Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I try something a little different. We work through six narratives at play in today's market and supplement the discussion with slides and data to illustrate our points. If you're just listening to the audio, you actually might get more out of this if you pop over to the Excess Returns channel on YouTube and watch the episode there. You'll be able to see all the charts and the data. The narratives and the trends we discuss include the outperformance of growth stocks over value, mega cap technology over everything else, the six-fold increase in the Fed's balance sheet, the levels of cash on the sidelines, and the massive new demand for individual stocks from retail investors. Jack and I walk through each one of these in an effort to think through what the implications may be for today's long-term investor. For those of you who find this discussion interesting and valuable, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts and send us a screenshot to info at we'll send you a free copy of Morgan Housel's brand new book, The Psychology of Money. We'll also include the full 30-page presentation which includes the six narratives. This is the full presentation I recently gave to a few thousand investors at a leading online brokerage firm and investment company. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, today we're gonna to try something a little bit different. Um, I gave a presentation the other day um, to a major online brokerage um, a company and their investors. And as part of that presentation, um, I had discussed um, some market narratives, six market narratives that are playing out so far in 2020. So at any given point in time throughout all market cycles, you're always going to find different trends and narratives at play that are influencing the overall market and environment. Some of these trends and narratives um, tend to be long lasting. Some tend to be a little bit more fleeting. Um, but I think each one of these uh, trends will have some implications for investors going forward. And I sort of discussed what those might be, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. But just real quickly, before we get into the details, um, a quick overview is, um, the first is the um, growth stocks over value stocks, which we've talked a lot about on our podcast, um, and also large caps over small caps. Um, the second trend is mega cap tech over everything else. Um, the third is what is, has, was a historic decline at the beginning of the year, but then also a historic recovery. Number four is uh, Buffett's cash on hand, but probably more broadly, the cash on hand and the increased cash levels uh, of many investors. Number five is the Federal Reserve, which we uh, talked about um, on other podcasts as well, but we'll kind of get into that a little bit. And then the sixth trend is obviously retail traders and, and individual investors are back picking individual stocks. So let's try to work through um, each one of these with some charts and some data, and then we can kind of talk through those. So on this slide, um, what I'm showing you here is the Russell uh, style and size indices. And this is a chart for on a year to date, to, to date basis. And what you're seeing here is the Russell 1000 growth index, which is a large cap growth index, has basically um, trounced the Russell, it's, it's the best performing Russell index of the major size and style ones. But at the very bottom, you're seeing the Russell 2000 value. So the Russell 2000 growth through the end of August was up 18.6%. The Russell 2000 value 
was down 14.4%. It's basically a 33% return gap between those two indices, which is um, uh, pretty significant. Um, but this actual trend is not something that's just specific to this year. This is something that uh, is been going on for a number of years and pretty much since the great financial crisis. So what I kind of thought we could talk about is one, the cyclicality between value and growth and how these types of stocks um, sort of are always jockeying for some leadership. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then also has this ever happened in the past where growth has outperformed um, value to, uh, you know, for such a long period of time. So just on the cyclicality issue, Jack, and maybe you want to um, talk about this. Um, you know, I, I think from your experience, you know, we know that value stocks and growth stocks grow through these cycles of relative out and underperformance, um, right? Yeah, you know, my first thing I thought when I looked at this chart is basically this is the exact opposite of what works over the long term. So if, if you look back the past 100 years and, and you wanted to be in one of these categories, the category you'd want to be in is small cap value. And if you look right here, small cap value is, you know, 32% behind large cap growth. But it gets to what you're saying, which is within that 100 years, there have been a lot of significant periods where it went the other way. And, you know, we're in one of the bigger ones now. And there, there's this tendency to think, it's going to reverse any time when you, when you get these long-term trends and you know things going the opposite way they have over the long term. There's this tendency to think, all right, this is going to reverse any day now. And you know a lot of us that are value type guys have been talking about that for years now, and it hasn't reversed. And so this is what's so hard about investing is that you can have these long-term trends in terms of what works, but you can have these cyclical periods where the exact opposite of that works. And trying to time when that shift is going to happen is essentially impossible. And so you have to have no matter what you're doing, whether it's growth or value or large or small, you have to have significant patience to be able to sit through these periods where the, the one you've chosen doesn't work or, or you won't have long-term success. One of the things that I talked about on the presentation is why value stocks should continue to work in the future. And I talked both about the risk-based reason and the behavioral-based reason. But just as a refresher, um, do you want to just quickly explain what the rationale, what those sort of uh, core reasons are on why value stocks do tend to pr pr provide a value premium and whether or not they still should exist in the market going forward? Yeah, you know, value stocks work for two reasons. The first is because they're risky. And many people don't think of it this way because you're thinking if I pay, you know, less for a dollar of earnings, I'm going to get less risk. But the reality is from a volatility standpoint, value stocks are more risky than the market. And also value stocks have significant long periods of underperformance. So they historically have shown lots of risk. And, you know, that's, that's certainly been the case here. And so if you want to argue value stocks outperform because of risk, it would be hard to argue that anything that's gone on in the past decade would tell you that that's not going to continue because if anything, value stocks have been riskier in the past decade, not less risky. So if you expect there'll be a premium for that risk, then you'd expect value stocks to do well going forward. The other one is the behavioral argument, which is people tend to, when things are going wrong with these companies, people tend to bid down the prices too much. They tend to systematically overestimate how bad things are. And if you buy a basket of value companies, you can benefit from that systematic mispricing because eventually the market will realize things aren't as bad as we think. And they'll, you know, value stocks will do well relative to the market when the market has that realization. So, and that also does not seem to be, people don't seem to be behaving any differently. People don't seem to be not mispricing value stocks or not driving down their prices anymore. You know, one of the things that has happened in recent years is 
value companies just have not exceeded those expectations. So those already low expectations, value companies, at least in the past decade, have actually done a little bit worse than those already low expectations. But there's nothing in what's gone on in the past decade to suggest that might would go on forever. So if, if you believe in long-term data, you still will probably feel at some point value stocks will begin exceeding the expectations that the low expectations like they have historically. Right. And that's a very good point. And one of the other uh, studies that I referenced was um, O'Shaughnessy's work that actually showed that um, this isn't, or it, it, may, it may now be one of the longest periods of value underperforming growth, but there has been other very long periods in the past, specifically, I think from like the mid to late 1920s to the early 40s, um, when certain types of like manufacturing, I think companies would have been considered like the technology companies of the day. And they vastly outperformed the value stocks of the day, which I think maybe were more financials and utilities, things like that. I don't know if I have my sectors exactly right, but, um, but then as uh, other companies in the market started to learn the new technologies um, and, and integrate those in their business and improve their profitability, those value stocks went on to become uh, very good performers and the growth stocks of the day underperformed. So it's not like this hasn't happened in the past. And it's also not like when you look at the performance of value versus growth stocks, there's certainly a lot of other times in the future where you have these five to 10 year periods where one style works much better than the other. Yeah, if you, like you said, if you like to find two analogs in the past for what's going on right now, you would look at the 26 to 41 period and you would look at the late 90s. And in both cases, value did eventually return to prominence. Now, that, that doesn't mean there's 100% certainty it will now because nothing's 100%. You know, that's something we've learned from following Jim O'Shaughnessy is, you know, he'll never say anything is 100% certainty. And so it's not 100% certainty value will come back. But if you're a believer in the past, and if you're a believer that these patterns repeat themselves, and if you're a believer in mean reversion, then you would expect at some point here, which is a time that's impossible to time, but at some point here in the future, value is going to have its day again. The next slide um, that I showed was this idea of mega cap technology over everything else. And the way that I tried to express that idea, and by the way, this plays a lot into the last slide we were just talking about, which is how growth has just demolished value. But what I thought was great about this visual is it just shows you how large um, these, the largest technology companies are relative to all other companies. So this is basically the NASDAQ composite. And what it shows you is in the bubble chart, but also in the table, it shows you just how big these companies are. So Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook basically accounted for 40% or account for roughly 40% of the overall NASDAQ composite. Um, so that's just like a massive weighting. And by the way, it, it's similar with the S&P 500 since the S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index. I just happen to have um, the NASDAQ here as an example using this bubble hierarchy chart that I found. Um, so, you know, I, I just think this is a very interesting visual way to see um, how big these companies uh, actually are. And this is always, we're getting back to the same thing we talked about before, but this has always ended badly for these companies. Um, when you've seen this kind of concentration in the market, it always has eventually fallen apart. I mean, you can look at the nifty 50 period, you can look at other periods in history. This is typically does not bode well for these companies that are in these, this largest group. I mean, there's been a study and I don't have the numbers right on the top of my head, but if you look at the top 10 market cap companies in you know, the S&P 500 going into every decade, and then you look forward a decade and say, how many of them are left? It's a very small number that are still in the top 10. It was two or three or something right. like that. So most of these companies, if we look forward a decade, 
although it doesn't seem even conceivable right now because of how well they're doing and how dominant they are, the odds are most of these companies in the top 10 now will not be in the top 10 a decade from now. So that's a great lead in because Jason Zwag, um, the columnist at the Wall Street Journal, re recently wrote an article. It's titled Apple Still Wears a Market Crown. It Can Easily Slip. And so this, these are the statistics from the article. He basically went back to 1925. And what he showed in the article was that only a handful of stocks, 12 stocks, have ever had the highest market value um, in the US market. And those 12 stocks are AT&T, General Motors, ExxonMobil, DuPont, IBM, General Electric, Altria, which is, um, is for formerly Philip Morris, Walmart, Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon. And the amazing statistic here is over that 95 year period, AT&T held the top spot in 40 of those years. In the 1930s, it accounted for one eighth of the overall market. And in the 1960s, it was even as large as one twelfth of the overall market. IBM had the largest market value of stocks 20% of the time. General Electric and Exxon each ranked number one 10% of the time. And General Motors was even um, the top ranked stock based on market cap 6% of the time. And it's not even in the 150 stocks anymore. So when you think about those names, and especially the AT&T thing just jumps out at me. Like in, you know, 40% of the time over that 95 year period, AT&T was the most valuable company in the country, if not the world. And yet, you know, it's totally different today. So I think having that understanding of history and sort of just the natural capitalism, things that get built and then competition, you know, it's important to understand that none of these companies stay on top forever. And when you're sitting in that period, it always feels like it could never end. So if you were sitting in that period and looking at AT&T, you would have thought AT&T is going to be dominant for a really long time. How could anybody ever derail AT&T? And, you know, looking at this list in front of me right now with Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Google and Facebook, I feel the same way. It's hard to imagine these companies not doing well going forward and not being the biggest companies going forward. But this is just the way the market works. It's the way the economy works. Eventually, someone we've never heard of will come in and they'll derail these companies. And, you know, these, some of these companies probably will be on the list a decade from now, but most of them won't. The next slide that I showed was this, um, what I titled the historic decline and historic recovery. So what I did is I looked at our investable universe, which is approximately 3000 stocks. And then what I did is I said, what is, what, how did the average stock perform from the first of the year through March 23rd, which was the low. And then how has the average stock performed from the low through early August. And you can see these are massive, these were massive waterfall-like declines um, in a very short period of time. And the bounce back has been quite significant as well with some companies actually getting, you know, back above where they were um, pre the shutdown, pre the pandemic. So, you know, I just thought this, this to me presents a good opportunity. And we've, we've talked about this on many podcasts, but it presents a good opportunity to talk about the fact that, you know, the value, the vast majority of the, the value of these companies is not necessarily in this quarter or next quarter. Um, it's way out in the future. And that's something I think on a recent podcast, we, we just kind of went, um, talked about this at length, but I think this chart sort of is a way to visually sort of show that. And I can't tell you how many conversations I was having with clients during the shutdown who were saying to me, listen, Q2 earnings are going to be horrible. Um, you know, they're, they're basically going to zero and yet, you know, that was true, but what the market, what's important to the market is our earnings going to have the ability to kind of come back and what the market's sort of telling you with, with the, with the, with the gains 
since March is that, you know, in many cases, investors believe that that's going to be the case as, as they look out into the future. Yeah, a lot of times people look at these major declines followed by, you know, major reversals and say, something's wrong with the market. It's not possible for a company to be worth 45% less and then be worth 115% more and all that happens in a period of months. But the answer to that lies in what you said, which is that this is the discounted value of what's happening in the future. And so if you think about when the pandemic first hit, if we were going to have this major pandemic, which we've had, but if you were going to have, if we look at the death rates that we thought we were going to have when the pandemic first hit, we were going to have a far bigger catastrophe on our hands than the one we ended up having. And so if you think about a world where that's happening and you look at the fact that most of the value of the stock market is way out in the future, you could say, all right, this is going to go on for a really long time and stocks need to be down a lot. But then when things start to look better, it's like this magnification effect. And so as much as this year's earnings weren't going to be affected as much as, as these declines in the advancement after that would indicate, the future can be that affected because you get a situation where the death rate's not nearly what we thought, you know, a, a vaccine's coming a lot faster than we thought. You can look at this as sort of more of a short-term thing and that warrants a big bounce in the stock market. So as much as this looks like it makes no sense, it actually, when you look at it from a long-term perspective, it, it does make sense that when you have this kind of uncertainty, you can have these major declines and you can have a major bounce back. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it actually plays very well right into the next slide, which is, and I'm using Buffett here as an example, but we'll just start there and then we'll talk about a couple other examples. But basically what I'm showing here is uh, Berkshire Hathaway's cash on hand back to 2014. And if you were to just carve out Berkshire's current cash position as of the end of June, which he has put some money to work, by the way, he, he bought some stakes in some Japanese conglomerates. I think he put some money to work in a gold company in Canada. So there has been some deployment of capital, but you know, he still has a very, very high cash balance. Um, if you were to carve that out as a standalone company, um, basically the cash balance of the loan at Berkshire Hathaway would be the 40th largest company in the S&P if it was a standalone company. And it's not just Buffett who has a lot of cash on the sidelines. Um, I recently read an article and the Tiger 21 basically investment group, which is a group of like multimillionaires, um, people with you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that uh, make investments both in the public markets and private companies. They recently moved their asset allocation from 12% cash uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, let's say March, April timeframe to now 19% cash. So they actually have more cash on hand. And the, the chairman of the club basically said, this is the largest strategic shift in Tiger 21's asset allocation ever in history. And I think a lot of individual investors also probably raise cash. We know based on the, on the statistics that a lot of investors did when you look at sort of the fund flows and brokerage accounts and what they reported and things like that. So, you know, I think this is a, going to be a very interesting sort of challenging environment for those investors that did that. And, you know, Buffett is, Buffett's cash balance is often used as a judgment of whether the market is overvalued or undervalued. Um, I think that's part of it, but I also think part of it is his ability to actually put significant amounts of capital to work and have it be meaningful for Berkshire's long-term performance. And he is patient and he does want to be disciplined and buy value. And we all do, but you know, I, I think it's a, an interesting question of if you were an investor that was raising cash or raised cash during the shutdown, you know, the deployment of that capital, if you don't get a pullback, you're actually going to have significantly impacted and hurt your long-term performance. 
um, of your of your of your portfolio by by doing that. Now I'm not saying that was wrong. Some people actually maybe sh shouldn't have been that allocated to stocks to begin with. But I just think this idea of these high cash balance is an interesting one to consider and does have some implications as we sort of get through this and as some of that capital maybe finds its way back into stocks. Yeah, two things I thought about on that. One is, you know, everybody wants to make a lot of Buffett's cash balance, but it doesn't really tell you too much. You know, it's not predictive of where the market's going. You know, if you look back on the chart historically, you don't see Buffett raising tons of cash and then a huge decline following that or something. You know, so I don't, I don't know that it tells you a ton. And we don't know. I mean, this has been something people have been speculating about a lot is why is Buffett not investing more than he has? I mean, he sold his airlines and that turned out to be, at least in the short term, a bad decision because they've gone up a lot since then. But we don't know. I mean, is it because Buffett thinks the pandemic is worse? Is it because he thinks the economy is worse? You know, we, we don't have insights into exactly what he's doing. And he has started to deploy a little bit of cash now. So one is, I, I think it's hard to judge to use Buffett's cash to sort of, for any individual investor to try to figure out what should I be doing. And the second point you made is really important, which is that's the reason why investors should not try to raise cash during market declines is because if you do it and you're wrong, and the market starts going up, when are you going to deploy that cash again? You know, you now have to admit I was wrong and you have to basically, that, that is a really, really hard thing for an investor to do. So typically when you see investors selling at bottoms, they don't invest for a really, really long time because they continue to believe that their thesis they had in mind when they sold is going to be correct and the markets just got it wrong and eventually things are going to go my way. And as it goes up more and more, it becomes harder and harder to do. And so that's one of the reasons it's really individual investors probably should not try to time the market is because of that is because once you make that decision to sell, it's very, very hard to reverse it. And if you end up doing it before a major you know, advance in the market, you can lose a lot, a lot of returns because of it. Yeah, no, that's exactly um the point I was trying to make, you said it, you said it really, really well. Okay, so the next um, slide here is um, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And what I was just trying to show is, and it's pretty obvious, um, the Federal Reserve had about $1 trillion on its balance sheet at the beginning of 2008. It now has, uh, after the most recent round of stimulus um, and quantitative easing uh, this year, it now has $7 trillion. So it's a six-fold increase over... Uh, 13 years. And so, you know, we don't know necessarily all the implications of this. Um, some people think, you know, there could be much higher inflation in the future. Um, some people think that, you know, this is really good for stocks. Um, if history is any guide, especially the last 10 years, it would sort of tend to tell you that when the Fed when you have balance sheet expansion like this, it does tend to be good for financial assets. I guess the one thing that you know, you've talked about before too is that some of the stimulus that has come online has actually gone into consumers' um, pockets. So that may also be different than what the quantitative easing methods that we've seen you know, pre-COVID-19. But still, I just think you know, one of the things that uh, the great growth investor Marty Zwag once said, and he coined the term, don't fight the Fed. And you know, this is the Fed's been a very powerful force in the markets and influencer of um, a lot of things. And so I just this is this is a chart that, you know, investors will probably be seeing more and more of because it doesn't seem like, you know, this is going to be going down anytime soon. And it will have, you know, long term effects and implications on stocks. No, that's right. And this gets to the benefit of learning to say, I don't know, from my perspective, because one of the things I like to do is whenever anything happens in the market and it's never happened before, 
we all by definition have to say, I don't know what's going to happen because we have no, not that historical precedent is always followed, but we have no historical precedent whatsoever to say what's going to happen here. I mean, is, is it possible we're going to get significant inflation because of this, especially because there's been a lot of fiscal stimulus going on as well? It, it's very possible we'll get a lot of inflation. But by the same token, a lot of people have been calling for inflation for many, many years now with what's been going on, and we haven't seen it. So I think, you know, the best thing to to do when you see a chart like this where something's happening, we're in it right now and we've never seen it before is understand is to be humble about it and understand that none of us really know how this plays out. And for most investors, the best thing is probably just to be buying and holding their whatever their appropriate asset allocation was and not trying to figure out what the implications are this of this are or trying to make shifts based on it because none of us really know what this is going to mean and none, none of us really know when what, whatever it is going to mean is actually going to happen. Yeah, like you, you gave the example the other day, we were talking about the 60-40 portfolio. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, if inflation comes, it's going to be, you know, the nail in the coffin for bonds. And that seems to be maybe not the consensus, but, you know, you're starting to hear more and more of that. But, you know, who knows? I mean, that might not be the case. And, you know, bond yield, maybe that inflation does. I mean, we even learned today that the Fed said they're basically going to be keeping rates low until 2023, right? So that's three more years sure. of, you know, basically very, maybe even lower rates, which could be good for bonds. So uh, to your point, it's like, you know, you got to be humble with this. You got to realize that no one can predict with any degree of certainty where this balance sheet's going, where interest rates are going. But there are things that I think you want to try to think about and understand. Um, but to your point, stay, stay humble about yeah, you know, if you looked at bonds right now, and you sort of touched on this, but if you looked at bonds right now and, and you want to say, what is the obvious argument? The obvious argument is I shouldn't have bonds because I'm getting what? On the 10-year, I'm getting 0.7%. And, you know, the other benefit of bonds is basically when you get these deflationary shocks, you get price, you know, the price goes up of bonds and you get a positive return when stocks have a negative return. But with yields already down to 0.7%, how much of a positive return am I really going to get? But that, that's sort of not the best way to look at it because a lot of times these things that seem obvious in the market don't end up playing out that way. And so Morgan Housel, I wrote about in a recent article about this, Morgan Housel sort of looks at his bonds as the thing that prevents him from selling his stocks. And if that's the way you look at bonds, I think no matter what you see on this Federal Reserve chart, you can make an argument, you, you should always hold your bonds because if you wanna make sure that no matter what happens, I don't have to sell my stocks because I know most of my long-term return is gonna be driven by those stocks, then I should hold bonds all the time because whatever uncertainty comes up, you know, I'm, I'm, be I'm likely to be better off, especially if it's a deflationary type thing, I'm better off holding bonds than I am holding stocks. And if, if having that bond position prevents me from selling my stocks, then that's a good thing. The last point that I made was the retail traders are back. And what I kind of showed here was, well, first of all, um, in the first quarter of this year, Robinhood added 3 million new investor accounts. There was another major online broker, actually E-Trade, that saw more new account openings in March um, than they had any other year in their history. So in one month, they had more new accounts being opened than any full year ever on record. And I actually, um, there used to be a website which was linked up to Robinhood's API that would show you um, for all of the most popular stocks on Robinhood, how many accounts had added uh, those stocks 
to their their account. So what you're seeing here is, you know, number one, this when it, this got shut down, Robinhood shut down that API in early August. But at the time when I took this snapshot, it was still live. And you know, this shows that Apple, you know, hundred over thirty year over a thirty day period, excuse me, one hundred seventy four thousand accounts had added Apple to their Robinhood account, or Tesla, for example, one hundred thirty three thousand accounts added Tesla. And one of the things that I did. I went through and I said, you know, how many of these, I was just curious. I mean, you have Kodak in here, you have some names on really some, looks like maybe some biotechs, a lot of technology, obviously. Um, but about half of these stocks are or companies aren't profitable. So I don't know. I just, that seems like a little bit speculative to me. Um, but you know, that's kind of what's going on. And that maybe the, the point is, is, and, but some of these are, are great companies. So it's just, you know, the, the retail trader, the active investor, the active stock picker, is was sort of on its back i feel like at the end of that last year and ever since the shutdown um you know there's been tremendous activity and interest in individual stock investing yeah and this is obviously the types of behavior you most likely see closer to tops than you do bottoms but again it's it's impossible to time and we talked about this in a separate podcast you know another good thing about this is this will bring more people into investing. And although some of these people may lose money in these types of names you have here, they hopefully will stay in investing and they'll hopefully learn how to be better investors. Um, you know, another interesting thing, I was listening on a, a podcast recently about the options market and you know, you're showing this on individual names, but the amount of options activity by retail traders is just off the charts. It's, it's up by many multiples mm -hmm. during this whole thing. So people are taking it even a step further than what you show here. They're actually buying, you know, short-term call options, which are one of the most risky things you could possibly buy. So you're, you're definitely seeing that gambling mentality back in the market. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't end badly for people. It probably will at some point, but, you know, hopefully they still stay in investing and they learn how to invest the right way and buy index funds or do their own research or, or whatever it is they choose. And hopefully it long-term ends up being a good thing. Yeah, I agree with you. All right. So those are just uh, six narratives that I think are at play in today's market. I don't think, you know, we're not trying to put forward a bullish or bearish case with any of these. I just think understanding them and knowing the things that are influencing the overall market and individual stocks, they're important to think about. Um, you're not going to necessarily invest or buy stocks, individual stocks based on any of these, but um, narratives are important and they certainly play a role in influencing the direction uh, of the market, especially in the short term. So with that, I think we'll um, wrap it up. We appreciate you guys watching this and hopefully you found it valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.